Hey, Emily. Hey, Stephanie. You uh, want to do a podcast? Absolutely. Welcome to Cycle Chats, a podcast to destigmatize what it means to be a woman. This is episode eight with the queen of combat herself, Samantha Kaufman, a stage combat and intimacy director. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is so fun, Sam, because this is the first time on the podcast that we actually know our guest. So just a little background for people that are listening. Sam and I met when we went to grad school in Florida. She was part of my acting class. And I remember the first time I met her just thinking, wow, this girl has got confidence coming out of her butt. I mean, I had never met anybody more confident in my life. And it was always something that I admired about you because you spoke your mind, you told people what you thought, and it was amazing. You were you were just like physically strong too. You know, you were into stage combat. It was amazing. So I can't wait to ask you these questions and for people to learn and listen about you because I think you're an amazing person. Oh, thank you. That is, you need to put that on recording and I'll play it when I get sad. It's already recorded. See, she's so comfortable. She forgot that she's recording a podcast. She's like, oh, perfect. So Sam, can you tell everybody what you do and how you got into this field? So the little elevator speech that I give is I am a movement specialist specializing in fight direction, intimacy direction, but I focus on performance and movement. So any moment of heightened emotionality on stage that happens to involve movement, I come in, I choreograph those moments. I make sure everyone has consensual boundaries. I make sure everybody like is empowered in the moment. I make sure everyone is physically safe, emotionally safe, mentally safe, all those things. You're saying all the right words, empowered, safe. Do you find that that's one of the harder things to get across to people when you're doing, especially fight scenes, how important safety and connection is? Yeah. What is that? Like, is it the, the Duner-Kruger effect? Do you know what this is? I've of course now butchered the effect, but it's this effect that if you know nothing, it's this inverted you where, or maybe it's a, a, a full, no, anyway, look it up. But it's like you start off and you know nothing. So you're not confident about it, but then you learn a little bit and it like skyrockets. You get super confident about something. You know it all, everything in the world like is you can command it and everything. And then you keep learning about it and it starts to fall back down. So that is an inverted view. But I find most people in the theater, if I can suss out where they are in their relationship to stage combat, in that that why, that you, whatever, oh, science, where they are in that effect, then I have a more successful time doing my job. Because for instance, if you have someone who's like, listen, I don't know stage combat, but I really trust you. So let's, let's go. Then we're going to have a great time. Because honestly, I think a lot of my actors and, and my people, they get really in, embarrassed or apologetic about it. But if you're a blank slate, I just have a full canvas I can paint. I can paint anything on that canvas, you know, and I can walk you through all of the safeties and you get it and you listen and it's great. So as you slide down that scale and you start to get more confident, even though maybe you shouldn't be as confident as you should or as you are, then it starts to be kind of a push and go where they understand safety. Absolutely. But I have to slow them down 
I have to get them out of distance. I have to remind people that although they're fake, swords are still pointy and anything, if it has enough force behind it, will stab someone. Anything will, you know. Well, that was a really dramatic example, but you know. But no, the reason I brought this up is because in high school, I did Jekyll and Hyde and we did a scene where, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, at the end, the woman Lucy gets her throat cut. Well, we used a dulled blade. First of all, in high school, we should not have been using a real blade at all. And secondly, we shouldn't have even been doing this show in high school. But I digress. So we used this dulled blade. And the guy was so in the moment, our Jekyll was so in the moment, that this scene comes up. He puts it to my throat. And now he normally takes the back of the blade and presses down. I can feel the difference. But he got so in the moment. He didn't realize what was happening. He pushed so hard. And I'm like, ooh, this is not what we had, like, talked about. Just kind of little detail. I had blood capsules that I would bite on to make it look like blood was coming out of my mouth. And I guess a little bit had dripped down. So when I fell and I went, because I, like, put pressure, because I'm like, oh, my God, I'm I'm going to bleed out. Like, he cut me open. Because I didn't know it felt like it. I had kind of looked down and I saw a little bit of what was the blood capsule. But I thought it was, I, he really had hurt me. So whatever the lights turn off, I run into the bathroom. And when I looked in the mirror... He had pressed so hard that he left a red line across my throat. And so that's why I ask, you know, you can get caught up in these moments. I think as actors, we've all had those scenes. How do you rein in somebody who's maybe a little bit too? Yeah. Just to comment on that situation a little more too is on the surface, you're absolutely right. The fact that he left a mark is unacceptable. But also just to give you more insight to my job, your larynx is in your throat, right? Your larynx being essentially where your vocal box is and everything, the whole thing that makes us able to speak. And it is not hard to break. So like your windpipe, you have to really cut, you know, blood veins, you have to really cut. There's no way you could like break a neck. Yeah, you could slit it and actively break it, like cut the skin. And that would be kind of bad, but it's not like the movies. But the larynx, that's no joke. That's easy to break. That's hard to do any surgery on. Like it takes one little flick. It could have been bad. So I'm happy you still have a voice. So to your question, how do I deal with that? Sometimes it's just a matter of really laying all of that out for an actor and saying, hey, I am here for how excited you are. Like, really? Let's channel that into the character. However, your partner, who is a human being, who is literally essentially just a blood sack, is about to get in some serious danger. So back up. Like, calm down. So sometimes it's just that. But for the most part, like I would never, and I mean never, put an actor in a harmful place where I am like consistently seeing another actor get excited and have that kind of problem. Like I would have re-choreographed that maybe the third time just knowing that he gets excited. Because And that's fine. People get excited. Stage combat is not to be like, everyone's horrible and stop. It's just like, oh, I noticed you and your acting impulses are something that are overwhelming your, you know, self-awareness, your spatial awareness, all of this. So I'm going to choreograph it differently. Half of my job is foreseeing all of that 
and then mitigating it in the beginning. Well, you also educated me on the human body and what happens. And I think that's something that we overlook. We think, oh, stage combat, you just have to know how to like kick and punch. You actually have to understand the anatomy of somebody's body. What could happen? So that foreseeing, what could happen if I hit a vein here or here? You get seriously damaged. And the fact that you're able to speak on that and say, hey, look, I know my stuff. If you do this and you don't listen to my direction, you're going to hurt your partner. So I appreciate that you have that knowledge to back up what you're doing. Because that, me, I'd be like, oh, this chick knows what she's doing. I, I got to listen. That's helpful for somebody who might be a little bit more stubborn. And it goes farther than what the obvious things are. It's obvious if I take something sharp and cut your skin, that is not okay. It's obvious if I break a bone, if I give you a concussion, those are obvious things. But the things we don't think about is, as actors, we're not going to go up and do it once. We're going to do it more multiple times, sometimes multiple times a day throughout the whole week. So if, you know, my colleagues and I, we have to know all this stuff about the body, because if you're thinking about something like a sword and a shield for a body type like mine, I'm 5'2 and like 130 pounds, and I'm not going to be able to sustain a huge, even if I was the beefiest person in the world, like my body is not available to hold up a full shield just chilling, you know? So I have to, when I'm dealing with this stuff, a really popular play right now is She Kills Monsters, where the main person is with a sword and shield. It's this woman who's described as quote unquote average. And she has to fight the whole time like she doesn't know what she's doing. So all of that, you have to link into, okay, let me explain to you how lats work. Let me explain to you about pulling back your scapula so that you can support through your shoulder girdle. Let me explain how when you bend your knees, then we can support your core all the way up and you're supported rather than putting, if you're straightened, you're putting a lot of weight into your, your lower spine, you know, like things like this. How can we use different parts of our spine? How can we use different parts of our body, et cetera, et cetera. So it's farther than just what I think people think is the obvious safeties. It's also this idea of, I don't want you to injure yourself because you're slinging a shield eight times a week that's not going to make a very good story either because you're going to be upset and that's not the point of theater so you're talking about physical safety as sam first episode with nicole snell from girls fight back we talk about the idea of self-defense not only being physical but emotional do you find that as well in stage combat because i bet there's a bunch of points that connect between those two jobs between a self-defense person and somebody who does stage combat yeah there's a ton of different kinds of emotional things. For starters, when you're depicting any kind of violent action, no matter whether it be for fun in a comedic scene or for a Macker's play where they're actively like out for blood, that is a heightened emotional state that we don't walk through our world's feeling. So first off, my actors are putting themselves in an incredibly vulnerable and dangerous position where they're emoting and imagining themselves in those situations. So for starters, you have to have really solid closure techniques. You have to have like, I mean, 100% really good closure techniques, right? Because you don't want your actor to walk home and then go to their spouse or their cats and be like, I'm going to murder you. Why am I so angry? You know, or when you're dealing with things that are maybe a little more sensitive, you think of Spring Awakening has depictions of people taking their own life. And imagine those actors that then have to go home and they think, why am I so sad all the time? 
point you're spending a good chunk of your day pretending that insert hard emotional feeling. So there's those things. And then of course there's things like simulated sexual assaults, which open up a whole can of just past trauma in people's lives, or even just the idea of it can be really sensitive to people. So there is a lot of emotional and mental safeties that you put in with boundaries and consent and a lot of closure. So intimacy direction, I know is something else that you do. I know a little bit about it, but I don't know a lot about it. And I'm sure it lends itself very well into situations like that for keeping yourself emotionally safe. So do you think that the two stage combat and intimacy direction, do they fit together? Do you find that you have those two things you're able to therefore provide even more for your actors? I do because I think the more you know of anything, the better you can be. But it's not to say that if you're a fight director that doesn't have intimacy training, that you're less than. However, I find that my understanding of boundaries and consent and closure are all really solidified because of what I do with intimacy. I have very rarely done choreographed or directed intimacy for people who did not feel super vulnerable. It is super rare to walk in and have them confident. In the fight world, it's the opposite. It's actually rarer to find people who are not confident about stage combat. So I think that pairing my intimacy and understanding of vulnerability and how that plays into those moments in with the people who maybe need a little more of that support in my fight world, they really do go hand in hand. Plus all of the consent work, that's really good. And the thing is, is our actors don't have to do things that they don't want to do just to tell someone else's story. If we can get everybody consensual and excited and empowered with their own work, then they're telling their story. And that is far more interesting to me than just fabricating someone else's vision. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been speaking with someone and you've gone, wow, who was in charge of your production? What a crime. Because as you're speaking, I'm like, I have done so many of these scenes with zero direction, no help. And the worst is I've had directors yell at me, just kiss each other. First of all, I don't even know this person. And you're telling me to just make out with them on stage. Have you ever been in those situations And how do you coach and guide somebody through that process of them realizing how unsafe they were? Well, for starters, I want to say people are always doing the best they can in their moment. So there's no like hand slapping that I'm going to specifically give ever, ever. Everyone is always doing their best. That's the thing. So our theaters did that because they didn't know about anything else. Intimacy work is still pretty recent. It's coming up on 20 years. And of course, people did something similar before it, but having it codified the way it is now, it's pretty recent. But yeah, everyone did as good as they do. But I'll tell you what, whenever I teach intimacy, almost every time I do intimacy direction, I get that comment. I get, oh man, I wish I had this. I hate the, you know, I get the, oh, just kiss her. I've heard that a million times. I heard that when I was an actor. Here's the problem is that when two actors are doing a scene, any scene, kissing, fighting, all not involved, we sit down and we do so much table work. Table work meaning we talk about the context of the scene. We talk about where we are. We talk about relationship. We talk about the moods, the actions, the tactics. We talk, we talk to death about everything involved in that scene. And then when we come up to the kissing scene, We like jump right over it, just completely jump over it. So when it comes to setting the scene, like to actually staging it, 
as an actor, I have all these tools for the rest of the scene, all these breakdowns. I know that so my character so-and-so is angry and I'm going to use these tactics. I'm going to do this. And it's, it's easy for myself as an actor to imagine myself in that moment. But because we haven't done that work for the moments of kissing and intimacy, so any kind of simulated sex on stage as well, we as actors will revert to what we know, what experience we have had. So I, without having any understanding of the scene, what it needs, what that kiss is, I will kiss my partner the way I kiss because I have literally no reference for anything else. So my job as an intimacy director is I don't want to see character of Sunny and Sunny and Sunny and then all of a sudden Sam is there kissing and then goes back to Sunny and Sunny and Sunny. I wanna see Sunny throughout. I want to see how Sunny kisses. I don't wanna see how Sam kisses. The only person who needs to see that is my partner and they've already seen it. So I hear that a lot. I hear the reflection of, well, just kiss. And you know what? It's awkward. Our society is quite frankly, it's quite prude, but it has this thing where they don't want to talk about sex. And then when they do talk about sex, they don't want to talk about anything out of the very traditional heteronormative situation when they talk about sex. So LGBTQAI+, all of that world of wealthy stories, any, you know, BIPOC stories, which, oh gosh, there's these beautiful stories that we're just leaving out because we're nervous and awkward to talk about it. What a shame. So something that you spoke about that rings true because it's something that Steph and I hear constantly from every woman that we have brought on this amazing podcast is the idea of boundaries. Can you explain a bit more what you're talking about and what they mean to you? Yeah, I teach a lot about boundaries. So there are five boundaries, five types, sorry, five types of boundaries. Of course, I'm probably going to flip it because I'm excited to talk about it. But emotional, physical, sexual, intellectual, and energetic. Boom. It's like I knew what I was talking about. So physical boundaries are things that we, most of us innately understand, right? So a boundary is just a place that is, let's say, off limits. It's just something that is just like red light. Now that can be something super traumatic, but that can be something like, especially in the, in the example of a physical boundary, I have a sunburn on my back. Let's not touch it. Right. So it can be something big. It can be something little. It can be internal. I have a sunburn on my back and I don't want it to be touched or it can be external. I don't like when you touch my back, please don't touch it. Right. So Physical boundaries are your body or are the off limits of your body. Emotional boundaries are like emotions that you don't want to have or don't want to share. For example, in a scene like that one I said earlier with Spring Awakening, where someone has to depict taking their own life, that's a pretty emotional place. And someone might not want to go there. Intellectual boundaries, these are like respecting other people's intellect so that you're not doing things like, oh gosh, when I was a beginner, I always did this. What an idiot. No, you weren't an idiot. You did as good as you could in the, in the time that you could do it. Now you know better. That's all. I, I do that so frequently and I need to stop. I didn't even realize that. And honestly, like, do you, I'm going to be so self-aware of that now because that just hit such a chord. And I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? No, see, I just did it again. Boundary. <laughs> see, I noticed it this time. <laughs> Welcome to self-awareness. But don't beat yourself up when you know better you do better. But when you don't know, you don't know. So physical boundary, emotional boundary, intellectual boundary, sexual boundary sometimes seems a little more obvious, but it's actually the boundary of how you want to express your sexuality. 
this is examples of, you know, things you want to depict on stage and stuff, but also for people in the LGBTQAI, you know, world. Perhaps you don't want everyone to know what your sexuality is. Or even if you're heterosexual, perhaps you don't want, like, PDA. That's a really, really good one that we all know. PDA, if people don't like PDA, public displays of affection, that's a really good example of someone who has that sexual boundary. And then lastly, we have energetic boundary, which is this idea. I actually love energetic boundaries and I think it's so nebulous, but it's this idea that energy is like shared between every living being. And if you've ever had someone who's like had a bad day and they've like run into the room and you can feel that energy coming off of them. If you're not in a space to be able to support or help them process, you have an energetic boundary in that moment. If you are in a situation where you're dealing with something and then a friend like has to know what it is, but you don't want to share, that's an energetic boundary. So you have all of these five boundaries. They can change. They can get more. They can get less. They can be for one person and not for another person. But the more we're able to set our boundaries, the more autonomy and empowerment we can have of our own persons. And the more we can walk through life, not second guessing things and walk through life, not having to deflect and not having to process, honestly, what other people give us. What's the best way to connect with those boundaries? In acting world, I have people say them out loud. I mean, it's a bit more applicable in a direct sense. I'm like, hey, what are your boundaries? Oh, you don't want to be touching your shoulder? Great, we're not going to touch your shoulder. Oh, you don't like this energy coming in? Great, let's change that kind of a thing. But for anyone, actor or not, walking through your lives, I would say really reflect about it. And if you're finding that you have boundaries that keep getting crossed, then I would sit down and really define them. I would really, I would just write them all out. And I would write out anything you think of, anything you think of with everyone, anything you think of with specific people, anything you think of that has changed, you know, oh man, I didn't like hugging that person, but now they're pretty cool. So now I'm okay with it because there's nothing wrong with processing all that information. And you'll notice, ah, why do I always get upset at the end of meeting with that person? Like we have such good lunch talks, but I always feel weird at the end. Well, maybe it's because you needed the energetic closure of a hug and you're missing that. And then you can ask that person, hey, can I hug you? Boom. And now your need has been satisfied. Boundaries aren't always necessarily bad. Have you always been this way? Or is this something that you built up to? Because, you know, you meet people who are like super confident and you're like, wow, have you been like this since you were a kid? And sometimes they're like, yeah, I just, you know, it's just who I am. Do you feel that this is something you've always been? Or what was that defining moment where you started to realize I'm going to become this, this magical unicorn? I'm a magical unicorn. Oh, what a compliment. So no, no, I actually did not come out of the womb super confident. I was super bullied as a kid. I was the ugly duckling as a kid. I mean, I grew up in a small town, so everyone knew everyone. There was nowhere to escape. And when I had, I had no confidence, I was incredibly insecure. And I made this decision when I was like 16, maybe, where I was going to tell everyone that I am amazing. And my little teenage angst just left out the other part. I was like, I'm amazingly bad. I'm amazingly ugly. I'm amazingly dull. But I would just stop it as I'm amazing and let other people fill in the rest. And of course, when you hear amazing, our bias for the word, we think it's positive. So I was walking around telling people in their world that I am amazingly great and amazingly good and all of these things. 
And I mean, to the point where people would tell me it in response to things I'd say. And I'll tell you what, when you start hearing people reflect back at you, that kind of hype, essentially, that like when you consistently are putting that into your neural processing center, that you're amazing, that you're actually really good. I just convinced myself through sheer determination that I was going to be confident. And I am. There are some lucky people in this world that are super confident naturally. They're great. I am not that person. I am super confident about what I'm confident about. I still have imposter syndrome, hardcore. I still get insecure about stuff and second guess stuff, hardcore. But I have now in my adulthood supported the idea of telling people I'm amazing by making myself have a groups of friends who think that without me telling them. So that when I don't feel good, I can go to them and be like, oh, grumble, grumble. And they're like, nah, kid, you are amazing. And, and then I'm better. So something that you just said is something that I've heard about before. And it's maybe something that other people don't know what it means. What is imposter syndrome? Yeah, imposter syndrome. Of course, I could look it up and give you a really fancy definition, but I'll just fly off the cuff. It is when you feel like you're an imposter in your own body essentially. So a good example of it for me, just a like real life example for me is I walk into like full professional equity houses and I'm the fight director or I'm the intimacy director. And that means everybody's looking at me and I have a sense of power and I have a position and I'm sitting there like, oh, when are they going to find out that I'm horrible? When are they going to find out that they hired the wrong person, that I've bamboozled them? Because my imposter syndrome is telling me, hey, you're an imposter and you don't belong here. I do belong there. They hired me for a reason. I'm in a room that I'm in for a reason. Even if you're in a room and you are the worst person in that room, you are still in that room for a reason. You have still earned a place in that room. So don't let that imposter syndrome stop you because the only way we can grow is by surrounding ourselves with other people and ignoring that imposter syndrome. I'm curious to know how you are looked at in this world of stage combat, of intimacy direction, how you are looked at as a strong woman in that world. So there's something that is unfortunate in the world that I work in, specifically in stage combat. And it's this idea of a boys club. It's a boys club in the society I train with. It's a boys club in the theaters that I go to and work in. And what I mean by boys club is, first off, it's filled with boys, for starters. But also, it has this a heavy emphasis on the masculine energy at the detriment of the female energy. For example, there is a woman who is amazing in the society who I've become really good friends with. But I used to judge when I first met them because she would wear a skirt. She'd wear a tennis skirt to go train. And in my head, I was like, a skirt? Why are you wearing a skirt? You need to get some leggings on. You're not going to be able to move in a skirt. What are you thinking? Which is literally just the toxic regurgitation of that masculine energy. You know, and I've looked back and I've really processed that. Also, Serena Williams wears a skirt. She kills. So why could this woman not do it in a skirt? She still wears a skirt, by the way, which I'm really thankful for. But it's this idea, right? It's not, I didn't just come up with that judgment. That judgment was innate in the fabric of where I was. It's this masculine energy that anything feminine was not prepped, right? If your hair isn't back, you're not prepped. 
If you're wearing a skirt, you're not prepped. If you're wearing a crop top, if you've done your makeup, if you've done all those things, people literally will look at you like you're doing it as a hobby and not taking it seriously, or that you kind of don't know what it is. If I wear makeup, that does not devalue what I know about this art. And it has taken me a really long time to put that together. Now, I personally don't wear a lot of makeup just because I'm lazy, but that transfers to things like if I have my hair down and it's out of my face, like down, but contained. So it's not like obstructing my vision. Who cares? I can still do my job that way. If I come in dressed up in a crop top and I feel cool and I feel good and I'm confident, who cares? Right. I can still do it better than you can, you know, most of the time. But there's this masculine and feminine energy unbalance in my world. And especially when I go into theaters, just as a woman, there's always a period of time that I have to prove that I know what I'm doing. There's always. And there's two pathways. There's me blurting out intelligent speech, throwing out like the, oh, my larynx and blah, 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 blah right? Over-intelligizing the moment. Or there's me playing that cool, like, tomboy, slick, yeah, I fit in with the club, right? Because, you know, combat, that's male thing, right? I, yeah, I'm cool. Which I am a little more on the tomboy side, but I don't need to be, like, out of a biker gang to be good at what I'm doing. There's a lot of that balance. Now, of course, it's changing because our current culture of our Society at large is trying to really put a spotlight on that, but it's not changing very fast. It isn't happening fast enough. And we've made such phenomenal progress as women. Now we've addressed the elephant in the room, the inequality between men and women. How do we make that equal? Now what I really think we need to fight, and as a heart, like a feminist, is this inequality between other women. Because there is still so much toxic energy, jealousy, hatred, comparison within our own group. It should not be that way. We should be supporting each other, learning from each other, listening to each other. I know women that still push this idea that women are hysterical and men have their place and a woman belongs. And they've said these things to me and I'm like, I don't know that you're surrounding yourself with the right people. Because this is not a narrative we should continue to push. It's so bad. We need to start supporting each other so that when something happens to one another, we say, how can I help you? Instead of being like, oh, she's crazy. It, and I even still sometimes do it. And it's, it's also self-reflection and, and looking inward and saying, where am I pushing this stereotype? And how can I be better and acknowledge it and support my fellow woman? How do I lift them up? It's conditioning. And I think it, it, start, it needs to start changing. That paradigm needs to start shifting because for so long it's man against woman, but we forget. Yeah, we've addressed that, but this is still here and it's still happening. So now how do we address this? How do we lift each other up? Because there is room in the world for all of us. And if we stop thinking that we have to outshine the other one and that's going to give us our sense of worth, then it's never going to get better. We have to start supporting one another. A quote I live by is a rising tide lifts all boats. So if we all bring each other up, then we're all going up. That is beautiful. And it leads me to my next question of what 
does women empowerment mean to you? You know, Steph put it perfectly. It's just this idea of us lifting each other. Women being empowered is us having our own autonomy to do whatever we want to do, good or bad. Being empowered, like women empowerment, is being able to be our true and full and vulnerable selves in any moment, unabashedly us, because we do have to be quiet and say the right thing and fit into the boys club and not do this and not do that and make sure that, you know, my clothes aren't too revealing, but they have to be revealing enough, but my hair needs to be perfect, but my, and my makeup needs to be, you know, we think about all of the stuff that we have to do, but eventually, hopefully one day when you're empowered, when, when I, when I think, when I see a beautiful woman empowered, I see someone who is living their true selves unabashedly and with all of the volume that they can muster. I don't see it enough. And I think that when we give glimpses of that moment to each other, it lifts all of our boats. A rising tide lifts all boats. So the other question that we always like to ask our guests, because I think it's really cool to reflect back on your younger self, is what advice would you give to your 15-year-old self? Yes, I have prepped this answer. I would say stop trying to impress other people. Just stop. I did that so much when I was younger. I just wanted to be the in crowd. I did anything I could to impress other people. And you know what? Those people that I tried to impress, they don't matter. They have no stake in my life. What's Whether they liked me or didn't, they have no stake in my life. And the ones who did matter already were impressed by me. <laughs> so, so I didn't have to work so hard. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, follow your gut reaction, follow every single gut reaction and curiosity that you have, because it will lead you to more happiness than anything else you could ever do. What fun projects do you have coming up and where can people find you to learn more? You can follow me on Instagram at S-A-M-I-J-O underscore W-Y. I have more circusy things on my Instagram, so that's always exciting. And then you can follow me on my website. You can also sign up for my newsletter that I have. My website is samanthajkaufman.com, S-A-M-A-N-T-H-A-J-K-A-U-F-M-A-N.com. And then projects I have coming up, I'm teaching a bunch, it's not announced yet, but I'm teaching a bunch of level one introductory to intimacy courses that are coming up at idcprofessionals.com. So you can catch that, or you can just sign up for my newsletter and you'll, you'll get it all. I'm in awe. I just, I can't say thank you is enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for empowering women. Thank you for making the theater world a little bit safer for women and men. And thank you for being my friend because I am so lucky to have you in my life. You are truly amazing. And thank you for being you because I have to echo what Emily just said because you really are amazing. And this was an honor. So all of the thanks to your amazing way. Well, thank you for having me. The feeling is so mutual. Yay. I'm loved. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for stopping by. And we hope you sync up with us next time. <laughs>